0: Love, talk Radio. Welcome to Pagans Tonight Radio Network, the voice of the pagan world. Pagans Tonight is sponsored by WitchSchool.com, your anyone, anytime, anywhere, magical education.
1: And welcome to Nature Folk with Selena Fox, brought to us every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern here on the Pagans Tonight Radio Networks. Nature Folk with Selena Fox is a production of Circle Sanctuary's radio ministry programs. Tonight's program is a rebroadcast of an episode of Circle Craft Studies, where Selena Fox broadcast live from Pagan Spirit Gathering 2013, where she discussed summer solstice rituals, meditations, chants, sacred sites, and traditions across time and cultures. So enjoy this bit of Pagan Spirit Gathering's past. While this year's Pagan Spirit Gathering is taking place right now in Southern Illinois. And after nature folk, please stay tuned for a live edition of Circle Sanctuary's other radio ministry program,
2: Circle Talk. Greetings! I am celebrating summer solstice at the Pagan Spirit Gathering. Pagan Spirit Gathering is a celebration a pagan culture. It's a week-long celebration of summer solstice. And what I'd like to share with you tonight from this gathering site where we celebrate summer solstice every year are some ways to celebrate in your own way, in your own area. One of the first things that I'd like to share is that of working with the solstice sun. The solstice sun is at what some call the height of the solar season. The days are the longest at summer solstice time. The nights, the shortest. Traditions involve kindling of sacred fire to represent the sun some traditions involve doing sunrise sunset sun at midday rituals one of the things that I do every year on solstice morning is to get up and greet the dawn even though I'm at the pagan spirit gathering every year I do this as a personal ritual, and whether the sun is visible or not, due to whatever climatic conditions there may be, I face the east and the brightening sky. I've been greeting the sun every day at this week-long summer solstice gathering, And on Friday, June 21st, Solstice Day, I will be doing my own extended ritual in the morning. Saluting the sun on Solstice morning can be a short ceremony, it can take the form of standing facing the rising sun, raising your arms up, and celebrating the rising sun, and the longest day of the year. It can be a more elaborate ceremony in which you can do offerings, libations, chants, meditations. A chant that I wrote a number of years ago that I use is Solstice Sun shining bright. Longest day, shortest night. 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 A chant such as that can be done repeatedly as the sun rises. If you have a particular form of sun divinity that you work with, you may wish to call that sacred name out as the sun arises. You may want to have a symbol of that divinity on an altar, or you may wish to wear it on an amulet around your neck or have a depiction in a sculpture, a piece of art nearby to help you with your alignment with that particular form of the sun. I work with the sun both as a god, as a goddess. My own way of connecting with the divine is as one and as many. In addition to doing my own personal solstice celebration by greeting the rising solstice sun each year, I lead a summer solstice morning ritual and bring together people from many different solstice traditions. We have those who have gathered. Each have an opportunity to do a prayer, a chant, a reading, a short blessing according to their own tradition. We as a group encircle a sacred fire dedicated to the solstice and dedicated to community. As each person steps into the circle, and calls to the sacred sun in their own tradition. The rest of us, give them support. We listen. If they wish us to join in a chant, we will do so. And as each completes, we often will repeat a phrase such as, Celebrate solstice, celebrate the sun. Celebrate solstice, celebrate the sun. Celebrate solstice. Celebrate the sun. You may hear in the background some drumming, some singing, some children playing. I'm right in the center of the circle where I did a hand fasting just moment uh, before coming on the air at an hour-long hand fasting, and one of the things that I used, in the hand fasting is a reproduction of an ancient Irish sunstone. It has three circles on an upright rectangular stone. One is a very large circle at the top, at the bottom, of a small circle, and in the middle, a medium-sized circle. Each of those circles represents a turning of the solar wheel. The large circle, the summer solstice. The small circle, the winter solstice. The middle circle, the equinoxes, spring equinox and fall equinox. In the hand fasting today and in solstice group rituals that I facilitate, I take that reproduction of this ancient motif that sunstone. I take it around the circle and all those who are present use it as a visual to connect with the sun in an ancient way and in the eternal now. I like working with sun symbols as part of celebrating solstice. I have sun symbols from a number of different cultures. Another sun symbol that I brought with me to pagan spirit gathering this year is from Mexico, a contemporary rendition of the sun. And one of Circle Sanctuary's priestesses, Gloria Villanova, brought it back from Mexico and gave to me. And, and while she is no longer alive, she is crossed over into the realm of the ancestors. That gift, of Solstice Sun to me continues to be in my life and in the ritual life of my household and the pagan spirit gathering community and the larger community of people involved in nature spirituality and nature religion that I serve. In addition to greeting the sun as it rises on Solstice morn, There are traditions in celebrating the setting of the sun on the shortest night of the year, midsummer night's eve. And one of the things that we do here at Pagan Spirit Gathering is have some people be up all night greeting the sun as it sets and greeting the sun as it rises. Reading the setting sun, honoring it, and recognizing the eternal nature of the sun. While the sun cycle by day and by year goes through their own rhythms, the sun is an eternal presence in human life and in all life here on planet Earth. As the solstice sun sets. In some traditions, people salute the sun, pour libations of mead made from honey, made by bees who are associated with the sun in a number of traditions. Some will sing a song as the sun goes down. Some We'll do a meditation and then go in to the shortest night with some solstice activity. For some, it's an all-night vigil done alone in a sacred place, done alone in one's own residence, turning off all the lights in one's home if one is choosing to do the midsummer night's eve, solstice night, ceremony. Some take part in celebrations all night, singing, drumming, dancing around the sacred fire, having a grand feast, a party, revelries, Others will do drumming all night, gathering in sacred rhythms. Some other sun-related solstice traditions include kindling a fire to represent the sacred sun of solstice time. And keeping that sacred fire going for the length of the solstice celebration. In some traditions, particularly those from Native America and tribal peoples in the southwest part of the United States, the solstice celebrations, both winter solstice and summer solstice, go four days and four nights. Some will celebrate The solstice on the nearest weekend. Some people today of different cultures and traditions will celebrate not only on the particular day that is solstice, but a day before and a day after. The name solstice comes from the Latin, sol meaning sun, stis meaning stand still. And part of the reason solstice has come to get its name has to do with human observation of the point on the horizon when the sun rises each morning. It is at its most northerly part of the horizon arising on solstice, summer solstice and the most southerly part on the horizon, rising on the winter solstice. As ancient peoples observed this, they recognized that when it got to either extreme point, it appeared to rise and set for several days at that point. Several days. And for that reason... Some ancient peoples would celebrate solstice for more than a day and a night. They would actually celebrate it over a period of days for as long as the sun was at that point. Some ancient peoples are thought to have constructed stone circles, earthworks, and other sacred spaces aligned with the solstice point to mark. That journey of the sun perceived in the horizon. There are a number of those sacred sites still in use around the world today. Perhaps the most famous of these is Stonehenge. But not too far from Stonehenge is another ancient circle, Avebury. And pagans that I know from the UK celebrate summer solstice and both of those great ancient circles. In the United States, there is an ancient earthwork known as Serpent Mound in Ohio. It has solstice alignments. And the remnants of the earthworks in old sacred site and village of Cahokia, right on the Illinois-Missouri border, near St. Louis and East St. Louis, has a recreated wood hinge, and the solstice points are marked there as well. Some people find it powerful to go to one of these ancient sacred sites which has an alignment with the summer solstice and do ceremony there. Some that may be a ceremony of spinning time meditating at that place. Some may actually do a circle. Some may sing, some may drum. So much depends on the ancient site and what its protocols are. Stonehenge, for a period of time, was actually closed and just used for research. And I am so glad that efforts that were international came together and English Heritage, which care for for the site, decided to open up Stonehenge for solstice celebrations again. Thousands of people gather there. Pagan Spirit Gathering, our week-long celebration of summer solstice, has been held in a number of different places since it began in 1980, in Wisconsin, in Ohio, Missouri, and now we're in Illinois. And while we don't have any ancient solstice-aligned sites at any of the places we've been, we create a place aligned with the power of the sun and solstice by kindling a sacred fire and keeping it burning throughout the week. What are some other ways to celebrate the solstice? Have a feast, invite friends over. Have a cookout. Go for a nature walk. Pay attention to the sounds, the aromas of the sensual, sensory experience of being in nature at solstice time. Some see the solstices as really important times for working for world peace and well-being. That is part of my personal practice. That is part of practices that we have here at the Pagan Spirit Gathering. And it is part of... Practices by people of many paths, of many faiths and cultures. Sometimes there are synchronized workings for a particular focus for well-being, for the planet, some particular place, or the planet as a whole. In our morning summer solstice ritual, we not only honor the sun, in different traditions, old and new. We also focus our connection on the planet Earth and do Earth awareness, planetary wellness work, and join together our working with workings of others around the planet. Some additional ways to celebrate the solstice include exploring ancient traditions connected with summer, with particular cultures that you are descended from and or are connected with wonderful sources of information are folklore some anthropological research some pagan sites have on the internet have some of that information but what my favorite thing to do in finding out about ancestral tradition is to actually try to connect with somebody from that culture, from that country, from that place that ancestors have come from and have a conversation. What happens at summer solstice time today? Are there any places that have connections? Are there any practices that have been passed down? Are there any sacred foods that people have created that continue to be created today and shared? So, whether you get information about solstices past and present from the internet, from talking with people, from going to museums, Or in some other way, you may find it to be a powerful way to celebrate solstice by taking some time out leading up to solstice and do that kind of research. I see solstice as a time where we not only connect with antiquity, but it is a time where we can look to the future What kind of thing or things do we like to see happen in our own local area, in our region, in our country, on the planet? To do some visioning for future possibilities. And as part of that work, do some visioning, some meditation about ways to bring forth positive changes for the planet. As we go into celebrating summer solstice this year, some things to do can also include giving yourself some time to do some journal writing, some written exercises. One such exercise would be to start making a list of different things that you have done to welcome in summer, whether you've specifically celebrated summer solstice or not up to this point. What is summer to you? How did you celebrate as a young child? As a teenager? As you've continued your life journey, what do you associate with summer? What do you like about summer? By focusing your awareness on summer, For summer solstice is the official start of summer, it aids you in connecting with summer now and provides a framework in which you can create some other possibilities for summer celebrations in the future. Another thing that I like to do in connection with summer solstice is to walk the candlelight labyrinth that we have that's up at pagan spirit gathering every year. For labyrinth nights, a thousand candles are set. In a configuration known as the Minoan or the classical labyrinth, the candles are lit at dusk and keep burning throughout the night until the dawn. At times, I will walk the labyrinth on my own, and at times, and sometimes I walk the labyrinth more than once in the evening, I may walk with my husband, Dennis. The walking of the labyrinth, or it tends to be a silent experience, is a meditative journey, not only physically to the center of the labyrinth, where a fire burns, also a symbol of solstice in summer, It's a physical journey as well as a meditative journey. And after being at the center for a time, beginning the journey back out of the labyrinth, continuing the meditative experience, I see there's five parts to solstice labyrinth magic. In fact, any type of labyrinth work can have these five parts. The first part is preparation. Second part is the journey into the circle, letting go of barriers to new insights, to well-being. Being Being in the center, the third part. Centering, connecting with the divine. Then journeying out, the fourth part, carrying with you wisdom, understanding, not only out of the labyrinth and into the immediate vicinity once you've exited, but symbolically carrying that journey into your own life for the time to come. The fifth part of labyrinth journeying is that of integration of paying attention to dreams and visions, paying attention to your own process as you go into part of your life. Part of wisdom and insights, part of healing and wellness, part of creative awakening happens during the labyrinth journey itself. But more happens once it is complete. So as we look at possibilities for summer solstice celebration, I want to conclude with some reflections about connecting with solstice this year. You may wish to do a personal solstice meditation or write. And if possible, go to some place, be with others. It might be online. It might be going to a local solstice gathering. Celebrate with others. Or if there is not specifically a solstice gathering happening, you may wish to go to a place where people are enjoying Summertime, a local park, a forest, a museum, a place where people gather to renew, to celebrate, to connect. But I also invite you to join the grand solstice gathering that is the comb- combination of all of us celebrating solstice. And keep in mind a global awareness. Those of us in the northern hemisphere are celebrating summer solstice on June 21st and in the southern hemisphere, winter solstice. So in addition to personal work, in addition to connecting with others through physical or cyber interaction. I invite you also to connect with global solstice celebrations by recognizing and affirming that you are keeping alive an ancient tradition along with thousands of other people around the world to spend a few moments at this solstice time considering yourself connected with all of the others who are having wonderful celebrations of the solstice be it summer solstice or winter solstice on planet earth and to envision a world where there is more harmony, more wellness, more joy, more freedom. I wish you all a wonderful solstice, wherever you may be, whatever you may be doing to celebrate, to observe. Think of us, if you wish, as you listen live or listen later, making magic at solstice time, keeping alive old traditions, creating new traditions, celebrating the solstice sun, celebrating solstice traditions, celebrating the interconnectedness of us with other humans and with the greater circle of nature here on planet Earth and in the realm beyond. Happy Solstice! And now in this final part of our evening, I invite into the sharing about celebrating Solstice David and Jeanette Ewing, Happy Solstice, David and Jeanette. Happy Solstice.
3: Hope everyone is having a wonderful time. Uh, we've been looking at the weather, uh, and
1: it looks like you guys have been having some great weather at PS Yeah, we've
3: we've been jealous. Let's just say that.
2: <laughs> well, it's been pretty fabulous. We. Um, had a really amazing concert with Quathadilla last night. In fact, uh, Brandon and Vicki of Quathadilla were with a with that I hand it the hour right before the show started. And uh, we had some storm clouds and lightning and all of that kind of go overhead, few drops coming down, but just fabulous sunset, and there was even a rainbow that appeared. I mean, it was very, very magical. Um, in the background... You may have, I don't know how good my cell phone is in terms of picking up other sounds. I've got um, lots of youth around me at this point being quite exuberant um, in celebrating. And in the more distant background um, is uh, hundreds of people listening to Spiral Rhythm who are um, doing music on the main stage as I'm doing um, this show. And I'm right down by the pond in the evergreen grove where we have the hand fasting. And, and I am so thankful through the wonders of modern technology that we all are getting to connect. Even though you aren't physically here, you certainly are here in spirit. And I really thank you all for being part of this celebrating solstice show.
1: Thanks, and I think we uh, we just need to figure out how we're going to make this happen next year, um, do the shows while we are able to attend. Um, <laughs> yeah. GSD. So we'll, uh, that will be an interesting uh, concept and a techno- technological uh, leap for us all.
2: Well, yes, and, uh, and one of the wonders of um, this wonderful campground, Stonehouse Farm, uh, now under new ownership, is that all sorts of improvements are being done. So we may have faster and better internet next year and and may have all the technology down to do some pre recorded shows and get some folks to help us with that. So what are some things that you've done to celebrate solstice? Oh in addition to pagan spirit gathering.
3: Let's see, well there have been times where uh The the summer solstice ritual is a sun-based ritual where we will actually use little mirrors and focus uh, the sun on people, you know, with their eyes closed, of course, uh, and focus the rays of the sun on each person during a portion of the ritual to give uh, people energy from the sun.
2: Oh, that's really wonderful. Now, yeah, so each person to... we
3: have little each person has a little mirror and then we made a larger mirror. Uh it's just it's a mirror that we decorated with a Sculpey and a little sun pattern. Mm-hmm. And Oh, great. Yeah, Sculpey is your friend with
2: uh with pagan
3: crafts. Um <laughs> so yeah, so we decorated it up that way and uh we'll use that a few different times. Um One of the things one has to be careful of is the time of day. Uh, There have been times we've done it like close to noon so that it's not during the hottest part of the day.
1: But the sun's at its highest power, at its highest point. So you take these mirrors and everybody gets a little mirror and they focus it. We stand so that, you know, the reflection from the mirror, you know, focuses on on the person in the center of the circle at that time, so we have to do sort of a half circle around them and We have a chant that we say as we as we focus the sun's energy up from their feet Up to their crown and then back down to their feet again And we you know there, there are safety precautions you have to make sure you close your eyes um, with all these mirrors moving at you know this light um, but you can really feel the, the it's, it's very charging, you know, the um, the the feeling of all this focused energy from the sun, um, you know, being focused on a person on you, you know, with with intention like that. It's, it's a fairly energizing kind of a deal that we do.
2: Now that is wonderful, and that brings to mind a tradition not only here at Pagan Spirit Gathering, but in many places. There's ways of using uh, mirrors to capture sunlight and to ignite some type of kindling and then to use that sun kindled flame to kindle a candle that then is kept burning throughout the solstice celebration. Our main fire this year as in past years is kindled by sunfire done in that way. In fact, Um, The Olympics, which have their roots, uh, of course, in pagan ancient Greece, um, when they were revived back in late, um, more than 100 years ago or so, they actually have concave mirrors that collect the sun and the Olympic torch that goes on its rounds before it starts the Olympics is kindled from sunfire, which I just think is really amazing. We don't have anything quite so fancy here. A magnifying glass is what I think has been used to focus that sun ray energy, and then have some um, some shavings. Wood shavings are often used, or some very dry uh, material, herbs, or grain stalks, and so that's another amazing solstice tradition we do a gift exchange at pagan spirit gathering every year and it's uh, people think about gifting at winter solstice but we have a community gift exchange at summer solstice and one of the things that we do is each person brings some gift ritual object something of spiritual significance that they would like to share with someone else and give away. They write their name a bit about the significance of the gift and then wrap it up in some material so you can't really tell what the gift is. We have a huge circle with hundreds of people and we have blankets in each of the four directions plus a center one for the youth. They do their own kind of gift exchange And we walk sunwise, clockwise, around and place our gifts on one of the blankets, those us in the adult exchange. And then we go around again for the receiving round and pick a gift. The third part of the ceremony has to do with unwrapping the gift, reading the card message from the giver, seeing the name, seeing the significance, and then attempting to find that person. And that's always been kind of a a wild and fun thing to do. Um, We've we've kind of grown as a community, so we've had to get microphones (laughs) to help with that process. But um, one of the great things about gifting, whether it's using that method or some other ones, is it's another way of deepening bonds and connections, and really celebrating this happy time. Yeah,
1: and we've always enjoyed that aspect of the uh, of the gathering too. That the gifting, you know, we always like you said we talk about it at the winter solstice, and it's it's certainly appropriate to do for the summer solstice.
3: Um. Yeah, and well, that is in in and uh, other activities. Uh, are also designed to help uh, promote and uh, strengthen the bonds of community. It becomes a great way for people who don't know that many there uh, to meet new people.
2: Yeah, that's that's really true. Another thing that I do at Summer Solstice time every year, and you all have been part of this as well, is the Lady Liberty League, which, is Circle Sanctuary's organization that helps uphold pagan rights has its annual meeting at summer solstice time. And this year it's on solstice day. The symbol of the flame of freedom, Lady Liberty Holds, Um, is something that we use not only to connect us with freedom but to connect us with solstice. I think it's interesting that the Declaration of Independence that gave birth to the USA was in the process of being created and considered during the solstice season. And while... It wasn't completely done until July 4th. Clearly, some of our July 4th celebrations in America, America's birthday celebration, you know, fireworks and flames and images of Lady Liberty and the torch of freedom and Lady Liberty herself with her um, depicted as a um crown, uh flaming crown, and lots of points out. Some say it's certainly Statue of Liberty. Some say each of the points of the crown represents one of the continents. But if you go back into pagan sacred art, you'll recognize that that's an old motif, and it really is a sun motif. And I think it's really amazing that whether people consider Fourth of July and its connections with keeping alive, summer traditions and solstice traditions or not, clearly there are parallels. And it's just wonderful to be able to be part of the summer, to celebrate freedom, and to um, have a good time.
3: Yeah. And I'm still reminded every time you talk about, and I have to mention this, every time you talk about the morning uh, summer solstice Ritual. I'm reminded of the very first ritual, uh, the very first PSG that we attended. We attended all these rituals during the week, and we attended one the night before called Wait- Awakening the Blade, and it finished at three o'clock in the morning, and we were still sort of uh, kind of buzzing from that particular. Ritual that ended at three in the morning, and we got up at like seven thirty or something at or other seven
1: to, to <laughs> be at the morning ritual you know yep. at seven thirty or whatever it was yeah, so we were you know we we didn't have that much sleep and and we were still sort of um like you said kind of buzzing from that uh uh the ritual that we had just that that evening, which is a fairly intense you know personal transformation type ritual
2: yeah well, I am so glad that we've been able to reminisce and share some common ways of celebrating solstice and thanks for sharing your technique of and tradition of using mirrors and sunlight. That's one that I would like to experiment with myself and incorporate in practice and and While the time is coming for us to conclude tonight celebration. I'm really grateful to all the solstice celebrating that's happened and is happening and will be happening. I think it's so powerful that the ancient holidays of solstices that have been kept by many people in many ways over the ages and around the world solstice is continuing to be celebrated. In fact, I see it as getting even celebrated more as more people seek to connect with nature in sacred ways and to be in tune with the sacred circle of seasons and the greater circle of nature of which we're all part. In closing, I invite listeners to connect with more information about Summer Solstice on the Circle Sanctuary website, www.circlesanctuary.org. I also invite you to check out my main page on Facebook, Selena Fox Update. Follow me on Twitter, Selena underscore Fox. And I also want to Send love and support to all of those with the Pagans Tonight radio network. And I thank you both, David and Jeanette, for um, making it possible for me to be on the air tonight, from live from PSD. So have a great solstice, everyone, and many blessings.
1: And that was an encore edition of Circle Craft Studies with Selena Fox that was live from Pagan Spirit Gathering 2013. We would like to take this opportunity to thank our friends at the Widget School International and the Pagan Tonight Radio Network for allowing us this opportunity to connect with the community. And now we'll transition with the song The Wheel by Dave the Bard.
0: Smile with me inside I feel no fear as she raises the scythe above her head, blood spills on the earth as I fall dead in the other world.
1: Talk radio, a production of Circle Sanctuary's Radio Ministry program. Join us here every Tuesday evening at 9 pm. Eastern following the Nature Folk program with the Reverend Lena Fox as we discuss various topics of interest to in the pagan community. Circle Talk Radio is hosted on alternating weeks by Circle Sanctuary ministers Jeanette and David Ewing and Circle Minister Deborah Rose. And before we begin, we would like to express our thanks to the Witches School International and their Pagans Tonight Radio Network for allowing us this opportunity to reach the community. For more information about Witches School, please visit them on the web at www.witchschool.com. And for more information about Circle Sanctuary, please visit us on the web at www.circlesanctuary.org.
4: Welcome to our show. My name is Deborah Rose, and I'm your host tonight on Circle Talk. Tonight, we are going to be talking about all things Norse. Jane Sibley, Ph.D., is a traditional Norse practitioner and a specialist in Norse folklore and runes. She's taught at many pagan festivals for centuries, centuries, decades, and she's here with us tonight. She is also known as Auntie Owen, and she is also an author. She has uh, Norse mythology, Hammer of the Smith and her new book, The Way of the Wise, that we're going to be talking about. Welcome, Jane.
5: It's good to talk to you.
4: Oh, thank you so much. So for um, a lot of our listeners who are new to this path or seekers, talk a little bit about what it means to be Norse. Okay. There are a lot of misconceptions
5: these days. You've got these neo-Nazis running around with thinking that the Elder Futhark runes were used by the Vikings. Wrong. And
0: mm-hmm.
5: a lot of this stuff that they're doing is just so t- totally Nazi German, um, and they're trying to reclaim the runes for their stuff. I am in the process of writing a book on runes, and there's going to be a big section called When Folklore Ran Wild, Runes in the Third Reich. And... Those guys were wacko, and a lot of stuff from that, since German is such an uh, accessible language to the English-speaking audience as opposed to Norwegian, Swedish, or Danish, uh, that that has gotten into a lot of the modern heathen community, particularly among prisoners. Over. I tend to use over from uh, radio, My father was a radio ham, so you know you go over.
4: (laughs) (laughs) So um,
5: you're fading out. You're very faint. I can barely hear you.
4: Can you hear me? Can you hear me better now?
5: No. Okay, hold on. Let. You're very faint.
1: Hey, Jane, this is uh, David here. Looks like Deb is uh, going to call back in again, so we'll give her a okay. second. Okay. That, that sounds like a really good so, But We're online? Book. Oh, we are. So here she's back.
0: Okay. It, could be, it is
4: storming where I am, and so it could be that um, my electricity goes on and off, so it could be that that's why you were having a hard time hearing me. Do you hear me better now? Much better. Okay, yeah, that's probably why the call dropped. So good. So, all right. So tell me. Um, Tell our listeners a little bit about um, some Norse beliefs and what type of deity is associated with the Norse practice.
5: Okay, there are two really separate sections. There is the condicionerte, which were the city folk. Condicionerte means little, literally polished. And then almuen, who were the common folk out in the boonies. And the common folk. Pay, uh, the uh, peasant tradition, that's where I come from. And so, like the um, pe- the um, polished folk, the city folk, had all sorts of um, ceremonial stuff, and it, later on they would have uh, maybe their bodies shaped in the form of runes, and, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. Whereas in the peasant area, you were trying to live, and so you had spells or treatments, the medicine, that um, you were for man and beast, because, like the wise woman, would treat animals as well as humans. And uh, the level of medicine among the peasantry was extremely sophisticated, whereas among the conditioners, or the polished people, in or the elite, as we might call them, um, particularly when Christianity got in um, they would say oh I was baptized that is all the washing I need for the rest of my life Whereas (laughs) out in the boonies you had the equivalent of a sauna and if you've ever been through a sauna you're still squeaking two days later hygiene was extremely important Um, and so um, uh, also a recognition of what actually worked over.
4: So was um, I, Was herbal craft an important part of this in the early north? Oh, my gosh,
5: yes. There were some herbs such as purple gentian, which is extremely bitter, but in order to make it heal, you would have to give it something called a new or a nice, nice name. So in Norwegian it would be called root or sweet root, so it it would be, oh, it would be flattered, so it would certainly heal. But they had an incredible uh, array of herbalism, which I have a huge herbal section in my book, The Way of the Wise, Traditional Norwegian Folk and Magic Medicine. One of the most important herbs was comfrey, which they called valurt, V-A-L-U-R-T, Valid mm-hmm. had to do with the, uh, with, with the dead or very badly injured. Ut, obviously, is like wart or herb. And mm-hmm. uh, it's essentially nature's crazy glue. Then plantain, which was called grublad or growing leaf. That's mm-hmm. the one, if you go out in the lawn and you look at these leaves, and they've got these long veins that go the length of the leaf. That is an incredibly good one against inflammation. Um, If you crush the leaf and rub it against like an abrasion, it really Mm -hmm. is one of the very important herbs. There were so many that were so important, and some came up with the monks later on, particularly the Benedictines.
4: Over. So were these wild-crafted herbs, or did they grow herbs to use, or both? You're fading out.
5: I can barely hear you um the um some of them were brought north and uh, cultivated by the Benedictines. We were the primary herbal uh, folks, but um most was wildcrafted. What you would do when you went out to seek an herb, the first one that you met, you would greet it because you wanted the spirit of the plant to um, be look at you friendly and say, uh, I need your help, and uh, may I take a leaf? You never took more than one, or if you, you always had to leave some, and, but then you go farther into the forest, you could take more, but you never took all of a plant, and you also thanked the plant. And um, there were certain times that it would be very good for gathering, particularly midsummer. Uh-huh. Longest day of the year, and so you would gather uh, various things then. Um, over.
4: So, were what about um, sort of wild herbs or like dandelions or violets or were they used?
5: Violets not so much, but dandelions certainly was. That's called leveton or lion tooth, and. The flowers were used. The greens, of course, were some of the earliest um, delicious herbs. You know, you simmer them up. The roots were used. Uh, you used so many of
4: the plants that people now considered weeds. Over. So tell us a little bit more about your book, The Way of the Wise. Okay. Um, it's it was about 15,
5: 18 years in the making. Uh, some of this I learned; it was it was family tradition. But uh, some of this, being at graduate school in Norway at the University of Oslo, and talking to people, and some of sometimes people would wonder, "What valley did you come from? Have they discovered toilet paper yet?" Because I speak a very <laughs> rustic Norwegian. But I Uh knew when I was out in the countryside when somebody was, you know, what was going on. And there was one shop near Akashu's Castle in Oslo, and um, my professor, we were working on a class on field techniques and folklore collection, et cetera. So he pointed out this store, and he said, go in and ask for certain things. Well, I knew what to ask for. So I did, and the little old lady behind the counter says, almost jumped over the counter and said, are you going to set up practice here? Our wise woman has died. We have nobody. And I went, eep, because I had explained <laughs> to her that I was an American student and I was finishing my year at the university and I'd had to go home. And she was so disappointed. Over. So what all um, – so the um, way the
4: wise okay. – it? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay, the book. Um, yeah, I will
5: go through – Diseases and treatments, what are some of the major treatments. Um, and I go into uh, magical treatments. And uh, then I go through, uh, there's a chapter on hygiene, things to do with the head, including hair, teeth, nose, eyes, ears, tongue, and also the uvula. You know that little gung yang gung that hangs out in the back of your throat? Yeah. Uh, it's so the, the nervous system. Skin, including various skin conditions, and, yes, they had treatments for uh, psoriasis And uh, back in the old days, uh, digestive system, urinary system, respiratory system, muscles, ligaments, and tendons, the skeletal system, reproduction, um, and dying and death, and veterinary, um, a huge, um, lots of indexes, and, uh, you know, hey, it's doctoral dissertation time, sort of. Over.
4: Tell me about, I know we talked a little bit about Norse magic. What does uh, Norse magic look like? What are some things that would be considered Norse magic?
5: Okay, in the uh, peasantry or the out in the boonies, you are not so much on this god and that god. Incidentally, Odin was essentially promoted by Snorri Sturluson in the 1400s, after Christianization of Iceland, uh, there is a very interesting biography of Snorri Sturluson called Song of the Vikings. You can get that on Amazon.
0: The Mm -hmm. guy was not
5: a nice guy. He wanted to be the uncrowned king of Iceland, and he invented a lot of stuff. A lot of the, um, like, and then some of the stuff he got from the continent, German stuff, or Germanic, continental Germanic, as opposed to Norse. A lot of the... Original Norse, there were strong links with the Sami, which we used to call laps, laps but lap in Norwegian means a tattered piece of cloth.
0: And mm-hmm.
5: so, but there are at least three gods in Norse mythology who came from the Sami. The first one, of course, would be Ullr, who was called the shield god, but that shield was actually the shaman drum called the govadas and so he was the male sami diddy we had skadi who was the equivalent the hunter huntress in a way but also sif who took up with thor who was um, the equivalent of Ramanaid, who was the grass maiden in other words she was the one that oversaw the grass growing to feed the reindeer and the story of Loki cutting off um, Sif's hair and then having to replace it with gold probably came from the fact that one burned off a pasture. And I remember do, seeing this when I was a kid. You burned off a pasture, and that took care of weeds and uh, parasites, et cetera. And in an acid soil, when you have the alkaline ash added, it buffered the soil, the crop the next year would be like gold. So there are a lot of things that came like that. The aesir were like from the south and they were relatively late in, as a matter of fact probably closer to Snorri. Snorri was the one that really pushed them because before, and the three aesir or families of the runes the first family is a et or frey <laughs> et. That's the natural earth. The second is Hagal's et. Hagal means literally hailstone. Hailstones only occur in thunderstorms. But that is linked with Thor, and that was the cosmos, the natural cosmos, the sky. The third, it was Tyr, and that was the god to do with things of the humans. And he was a honor god. He was a warrior but he was, you know, um, he would have been like an Eagle Scout. He would have been like a probably like a uh, um, uh, Army Ranger, you know, really, <laughs> but an honest, honor, honorable guy. And so, but Odin never had anything whatsoever to do with the runes in tradition. And uh, the earliest we have in Norway of a link uh, or a mention. Of Odin was on the, the Reba skull fragment, which was Viking period. So he was a relatively newcomer. So a lot of the stuff that people regard as quote the lore unquote was Snorri's invention. Over.
0: Hmm.
4: Jane, did you grow up north? Pretty much. Over. <laughs> so if. Um, is Norse is that a tradition? you're fading that,
5: out. I can't hear you.
4: uh, that's because my electricity's out, and I'm sitting in the dark. Uh, can you hear me better now yes, okay uh um is that something that is practiced solitary, or do you meet in groups in groves or or how is it traditionally um um uh, done? No covens, no groves that's city folk stuff. Okay.
5: Uh, pretty much alone, but you, if you're in a community, for example, you would be like the veterinarian, or you might be the uh, counselor. Uh, you might be the dentist. You know, Of course, then you'd take him over to the Smiths, uh, uh, Smithy, and if the tooth was too bad, you got the patient drunk, laid his head over the anvil, and out with the Smiths pliers. And there you go. And then what you do is... You take a piece of wad of uh, like uh, linen roving or something, and um, soaked with uh, comfrey juice. Put that in, and remember the cartoons like of Porky Pig, whatever, the cloth tied around their heads with a knot on the top, indicating toothache. Right. Well, that's what they used to do to hold the mouth shut, so that the medicine could work. Uh, and that so that goes way back in folk medicine. They used to do that. It doesn't necessarily mean toothache, but it could also be tooth extraction.
4: So does um, Norse have an affinity for animals? I know you talked about... I can't uh, hear you. Does Norse have, North? and then you fade? Um, do do um, Norse practitioners have affinity for working with animals?
5: Okay, I can barely hear you. I think you asked whether they had affinity for animals. Yes, they do. And there are many treatments for uh, various animals. Dogs and cats, they could always get more, but you, you treated horses, cows, goats, and sheep primarily. And there was there was a lot of veterinary medicine uh, and met also charms and spells that you would use, for example, uh, burning something on the back of a cow or reciting something into you know, uh, very, very quiet, quietly into like a salt or grain or something, which would then be fed to the animal. But you see, that would be very solitary, and even the person owning the animal should not know what was being said or done. So there was a lot of secret, and a lot of the Norse magic was done in complete silence. Over.
4: Oh, that's interesting. So, um so Norse magic traditionally isn't, it's not something that you I can't would do hear you. Group. You're fading out. Magic is not something that you would do in a group or draw in a circle.
5: Well, the closest I get is what I call Norse working, where we do a healing circle but it's a teaching circle. Where we raise the energy but we treat various conditions. I don't go we don't go for colds but uh say, for example if somebody's um, fighting cancer or somebody has got um a bone problem or uh, asthma, serious asthma, et cetera. We're working and channeling the energy, but then the person who suffers from it knows where the problem is. So we make the available, the sort of the toy counter available, so they can take what they need to heal themselves. So there is a lot of guess what, patient, you are going to heal yourself, but here is here are the tools
4: to do it with. Over. Do do um. Norse magic include
5: um, love magic? Does it include what?
4: Love magic. Love. Oh, my
5: heavens. Yes. There are quite a few spells to make the penis stronger, and there's one to make the penis timid. Um, Yes, there is a lot of love and lust magic, particularly in the men's grimoires. They wanted to have... So, the, the woman would forget her true love and raise her skirt for him. So, it mostly was the guys. The women want, in women's, it would be for the safe pregnancy and the safe delivery of a child, uh, not so much the love lust thing. Over.
4: That's interesting. So, give me an example of what a, a love working would look like. Okay,
5: let me just go to this section here. Um, I'm just... I've got my computer up here, and so I'm just going to... um, Okay, reproductive. Uh, Okay, and this is from 1790, and so it was said, an approved agent to wake up carnal desires. And so there was a... um, Oleum canceridum, whatever that is, um in infusion, in infusionum, in they use Latin a lot and they want to do secret thing. Herewith shall the penis and scrotum be smeared. Yippee. Uh, <laughs> or soak the limb, which is the penis, often in strong brandevin, which is like um uh it's it's like um JP five, it's like uh, rocket fuel. Uh, One who has had removed bones, three, four, would thereby be helped. Not clear what it's all about. Okay, Uh, the womb, it was mostly for conception and womb problems because it was believed that the womb wandered around in the body. And so uh, you had wanted to nail the womb down in um, a um, single place so that it wouldn't... uh, I have problems now, since I'm just sort of scrolling down here. And um, was there Aquinas? Um, okay, uh, and um, here is to quiet the woes and contraction pains of women in childbirth. And this is about 1750. Recite these words in ale or tea or in water or in salt and give it to her to eat or drink. In other words, you're quietly mumbling this into the liquid. So mm-hmm.
0: I'm going to give
5: you the Norwegian, and then I'm going to give you the um english and okay. um this is uh obviously christian. Deo spermat de stile dei, ei skare de mare nei. De ska föda världens frälsar, dig med det budskap hisker. Alabaster ve smärte ska gå Jesu o Maria Maria, det hjärta, Jesu medlidne moder. Som i blirar till argoder, be dig mor sin sinna which reads out as pain and smarting, be quiet, don't hurt yourself more than me. you shall give birth to the earth's saviour you, I wish that with all with this request shall greet all birthing women's woe and pain shall go to you, Jesus and virgin Mary to your hearts, Jesus, with your nice mother, who is and will be for all good things, ask your mother. To find it within herself to release this woman, woman, from her woes and childbirth agony in Jesus' name. And the three uh, will be Father, our Father, Son, and Holy uh, One, which is the Holy Spirit. And so, but then there were a whole sequence of things. Uh, for example, you would see, feed uh, tansy tea. Tansy, tansy, it was also called rein which is like reindeer antlers, and. Mm-hmm. That is uh that acts on the smooth muscles, also parsley does, and so you want to have the um child born uh and then the placenta you want to have the sneezing also used to uh expel the placenta mm-hmm. and or to have the mother blow into an empty bottle or other container um if it's a breech presentation, the midwife might turn the or have people hold the mother by the ankles, upside down, and then try, uh, with gravity helping her, to push the baby back into the uterus and turn the baby. This goes back to Viking times.
0: Mm-hmm. And wow. uh,
5: one of the most fearsome ghosts was the dead child, one who was stillborn mm-hmm. or one who died as a fetus in, in utero. And so mm-hmm. if you were walking along and you heard something like a child crying, you did not turn, and in pagan times you would say, I name you say a boy's name a girl's name and the ghost having now a name could go on say to the beautiful lands but if you oh. did not name the the ghost then that was that was a very scary thing but childbirth was very good in the um Norse times for example the um which is the uh, umbilical cord you want to mm-hmm. have that cut straight across because it was cut at an angle. It was believed the person always would be a little different. And um so uh the um yeah, I've done two places and then the placenta would be delivered and disposed of the way so special way so that the Uniortus or the under earth ones could not um attack the either the mother or the child. But a midwife had to be available to help the, the uh, under Earth ones uh, to be deliver their babies too, and so um, you know it was a this was a major thing. The cleanest place in the settlement was the bathhouse, like a sauna, because uh-huh. those were very very clean. And a woman giving birth would either be doggy fashion on knees or hands with a midwife behind, helping the baby out, or Mm -hmm. would sit on a V-shaped stool, usually the one that the um, the brewing keg would sit on. You just remove that. And uh, so sometimes the father of the child would sit there with the mother sitting on him, you know, with legs spraddled wide, and (laughs) underneath would be a a shallow container containing reindeer moss and warm water, which would hydrate the mother. And so the midwife, or you were the movie, or yes, the kuna, helping woman, would be behind helping the baby come out, and you had gravity working for you. And uh, so when the baby came out, then, you know, all the messy bits would go into the container. And if the child landed on it, then it's nice and soft and warm, and so that the uh, child would be, if in, if in good shape, et cetera, et cetera, would be given to the breast. And when a child was given to the breast, then it was accepted. But, you know, sometimes in the case of spina bifida or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, it was obviously maybe a troll child or something and would be taken out and exposed. Over.
0: Mm.
4: That's that's interesting. Actually, that sounds a smarter way to giving birth than we do nowadays where you lay flat and try to push against gravity.
5: Yeah, that's a that's a modern way. Because that was of the convenience of the doctors, you knowing you have your knees in the stirrup cups and your legs spread, it, mm-hmm. But a child coming out would go down, up, down, and it's not an easy way to give birth. Whereas if you are upright, then gravity helps you and if you wiggle, the child wiggles out, it will be much quicker and easier on the mother. They did not have anesthesia back then. They did not mm-hmm. have, like, the um, spinal things that they do nowadays. Right. Um, so you wanted to have as short a screaming time as possible. Because, yeah, if you're giving birth to a watermelon, you're screaming.
4: Over. Absolutely. I've gi- I've given birth. I concur with that. So now we have a new baby um, in um Ancient Norse traditions, they they do baby blessings, or what did they do with the baby or helping the child grow up in the folklore? Okay,
5: there's several things. Uh, for example, if the child is not thriving, it was believed that it had something called ESK, E-L-S-K, which was a supernatural condition caused by a dead ancestor who craved the child child be named after him or her. So mm-hmm. what you'd have to do was name, rename the child after the ancestor. But naming a child after a living ancestor was bad luck and thought to drain energy from that ancestor hastening his or her death. So um, naming was important. You, and um, so naming. And then, now, Christian times were different than uh, pagan times. In Christian times, the mother had to be protected and left in the house until she was churched, as it were, so she'd have to carry a psalm book or something like that with her, and with the child, carrying the child. Whereas in pagan times, um, it was uh, you when the child when you're pregnant, you wear you have like a a bear claw on a thong around your neck, and because bears wanted to get their hands or paws on the child mm-hmm. because a bear, cause the bear because the bear the uh, it was a girl child. The be, the 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 girl child, if stolen by the bear, would scratch the bear's back and feed it berries, and you know it would be so nice. Uh, male ch- children, the bear would tend to kill. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
5: And but, the bears were extremely honorable. So one of the things in a midwife's kit was a bear paw, and I have one that was given to me by a um, Native American. And it's one of my treasures. It was from a bear cub that never thrived. It just died. And um, so in the birthing, that would be upon the woman's abdomen. So the bears come along all set to get the child Says, oh, it is under the paw of a bear already, so that they would keep moving along. And so you'd have your child. But you'd have to have special protection so that the in the, Yuriska, the under-earth ones would not steal a baby and leave one of their own in place, so their particular charms, particular things that you had to do. I go into it into the book, but in, in a program of this length,
4: you know, just can't. Over. Right, right. It it's, really, it it's really, really, I mean, it's really interesting, though, so I look forward to reading your book. Well, I know that you're also a rune expert, and tell us a little bit, uh, when did you start learning about runes? I knew him when I was a kid,
5: and I remember going with my mother. There, the, our local church had a tag sale, and uh-huh. I remember going. I saw a book, and it had runes on it. It was *The Hobbit*, and I, and, and the Anglo-Saxon runes, and I said, "I can read those." Here's your dime. And so, I was thrilled with that book because it was the actual runes from. The Thames Scramasax. Well, I, I, I grew up with runes. And mm-hmm. uh, so then came the Lord of the Rings, and they completely changed everything around. So smart-ass college student, me, wrote poor Tolkien a letter asking, how come in the lifetime of Bilbo Baggins, one person, the runes, which had been used since way be- way before, and these and here's a Greenland variant, and what was this? Da, da, da. And it took about a year, but by gosh, I got a letter back from Tolkien, and he said you're right. But we you're are kidding. explaining so it. <laughs> yeah, this is one of my treasures. And he explained that, that things were changing over. And then in that glorious handwriting of his, he recommended two rune books, which I already had, but I wasn't going to tell him that. And uh, but. One of the courses I took at graduate school in Oslo was runology, but I knew more than the professor, so we wound up doing a lot of linguistics. Uh, but, you know, I've seen a lot of the runestones. I have a huge amount of material, and I am in the process of writing a book on runes, starting from where did they come from and some of the forms, et cetera, but all the way through not only the Viking period and the medieval period, but the Renaissance, and because there were uh, there were some interesting new ages, particularly one in the 1600s that were really wacka wacka. And then I have we'll have about four or five chapters that the main chapter name will be "When Folklore Ran Wild: Runes in the Third Reich," and that started <laughs> there. with the Brothers Grimm, with really? one of them wrote "Über deutsche Runen" on German runes, including the Scandinavian material. And so I have. Uh, a huge amount of research material that I've collected thanks to the National Archives and Library of Congress and also two people that I've got their doctoral dissertations from Germany. Germany is so mm-hmm. much fun to read. Thank heavens they don't write in Fraktur anymore. And, mm-hmm. um, so, uh, and then into the 21st century, because we've got some interesting things happen in the modern New Age. It is interesting to me that... So many people in the modern New Age think Elder Futhark was what Vikings used. No, wrong. The Elder Futhark went out, and we have no documented rune names for the Elder Futhark runes. The closest really? we have is the Anglo-Saxon. The ones that they give now, like um, Fehu, Urdisad, right. etc., were guessed at rune names by a fellow named Otto von Friesen, who, in spite of his German name, was a Danish citizen, but he wrote the 1920s Encyclopedia Britannica thing on runes. And this was guest-at room names in a guest-at proto-Germanic. And those room names should always be preceded by an asterisk, which is the indication that these are guests at these are not documented. The Vikings used the short, the um, actually it was called the, um, Swedish Day in Common Runes, which is the younger Mm Futhark, which then went to the short twig runes. um, And there are some interesting medieval um, variants, particularly when you started having to write things in Latin. You should see some of the things that, versions of Latin, that they tried to put in runes that didn't quite succeed. Or you get a serious Norwegian accent on the Latin. Afe Maria Gracia Pleri.
4: Yeah, sure. Over. So tell us. So tell us a little bit about the lore. Uh, where did runes come from? Runes, probably the first rune usage,
5: may have been somewhere where between 50 BC and about 100 or so AD. I'm using the wow. common de- designation of um, right. And um, used for primarily for marking your name on things or in mercantile usage, shipping things like, um, like in having a stab tag that you put into a um, thing of wool and say, as he could, ah, owns. So the primary mm-hmm. use would have been like mercantile or ne- or, the, or this is mine. And somewhere along the line, some bright person said, oh, my God. this These little funny little scr- scratches, which mostly came from, Etruscan, some may have come from some of the Greek, particularly the Theta for the uh, rune Thor, and uh, some from religio-folkloric things. Uh, oh my gosh, I carve this thing in here and then this goes way you know, miles and miles away and somebody else can pull that sound out. It was as exciting as, Watson, come here, I need you. So then we start getting people putting magic words in runes, like alu, Saralu, uh, Salu, Lino mm-hmm. Cloud, and many other ones, and including in complete Elder Futhark, uh, the the whole the whole rune rows, which is why we have as much information as we do on the rune row on the sequence, et cetera, because every single magic word would be in there.
4: Over. So, so is that the is is at that time that they started being used for divination work? Divination would
5: be later. Um, now, I really realize that Tacitus said that there were notae on slips of wood, but it is not sure whether they were runes or any other sigils. It could have been something else. It was just said notae, N-O-T-A-E, which is like something inscribed. So it could have been like the equivalent of the Ace of Hearts and the Seven of Diamonds for all we know, except, you know, that's French suited much later. Uh, Mm -hmm. Divination would be um, probably uh, medieval. You start getting a big New Age in medieval times. And the technique I learned came from my father's mother and down from her. And it was Younger Futhark, and um, it was not um, the rune tile thing, which was 1979, that was... uh, uh, Alfred Blum, who did the uh, rune book and the rune kit, the rune tile kit, which I mm-hmm. uh, give him credit for several things. Number one, he did not derive it from the Nazi stuff. Number two, he said it was a system that he himself derived. And number three, it's fun and it works. So it is now part of the rune tradition, but albeit only until 1979. And people that claim it's a lot earlier. Wrong. Um I was, again, a smart-ass college student. I wrote poor Bluma letter. And he <laughs> called me from California. Nice. Guy. Really? He, a nice guy. And we had a nice chat. It said he'd seen a woman in England doing something like that. He did the best he could to take notes. So she probably used the Anglo-Saxon futhark. But he, he blew a, a bunch of things, but still his system works and you know it's now part of the rune tradition. Um I've been teaching as much as I can uh, as I see people uh say runes or rune divination etcetera etcetera. We have the East Kingdom Soothsayers Guild in um the SCA and uh
0: uh-huh.
5: Yeah. And so we have a perfectly good um group that is interested in various forms of divination. But uh there was a lot of other types of divination. For example, there was crystal gazing. There was, uh, um, you know, just we did not have card divination. However, there was something akin to tea leaf reading, but it was um, uh, being, which was um, used to diagnose uh, illness in a person. And what you did was you'd whistle mm-hmm. lead. From the north window of a church at midnight, you know, go go mm-hmm. stained glass window and just go up and a church was a busy place at night when the priest wasn't around
0: because <laughs> a lot
5: of pagan magic went around there. But anyway, and so that would be melted. And yes, they did have asbestos in period back into Vendel or earlier period, so you could have good pot holders, so you could melt the lead. And then, you know the connective bread, you know, it's like Vasa bread, the, the circles that have the hole in the middle? Mm-hmm. You place that over a bowl of water. Now, that water had to come from a brook or a stream or whatever that came from the north because the source of magic was to the north. So you place that over, and, and over, and then that bowl laid on the part of the body that was hurting, and then the, the, the lead dribbled through the hole. Now, the connective was good because it kept... Batters of hot water from landing on the patient's body, which the patient patient would twitch in there and there be, all, you know, all sorts of things. But anyway, so, um, but many times, hello, I'm Are here. Are you still there?
4: Yes, I'm here. I'm just okay.
5: Listening. But many times the healer would know exactly what was going on. Back then, you needed theater in your healing, and this was good theater, and people would come sometimes for miles around for good theater. They did not have internet. They did not have MTV. They didn't have, right. yeah. So, and so if you really, you know, if you were mumbling a spell, boring. No, but if you were able to really put some punch into it, and you arrived and you had a twisty staff with all sorts of amulets and things clattering on it, and you dressed the part, yeah, oh yeah, theater, oh yeah, you got paid nicely for that. So you know, it's also staying alive. But uh, a lot of these people would know exactly what was going on and use drama. And even today, we see drama. If you go in the doctor's office, they've got a particular costume or garb. Many Mm -hmm. times, even though they're not going to use a stethoscope, the stethoscope is around their neck. Right. They have a fancy little, usually a blue, like a little tag with their name with mysterious uh, initials after it. And they have acolytes following sometimes, like um, interns or whatever. So you've got the bedside manner. You've got all this, the I love me wall with all your diplomas. So you have
4: theater in modern times, right? Right. That's, I mean, that's a good way, that's a good way to, to look at it. So what would you recommend if somebody is interesting in learning the runes? What, what book or how would you suggest they start? The first book that I would
5: recommend is one by R.I. Page, P-A-G-E. He's perhaps the foremost runologist in the world. I, I, I hope he's still alive. But anyway, it's called Runes, Reading the Past. And yes, it is available on um, Amazon. It's not a very long book, but it is accurate. The guy is very, very accurate. He takes a, but he takes a very dim view of magic in runes. Uh, There are a lot of publications um, not in English language, so we'd have to stick to things in English. Um, Right. As far as runes go, as far as the Norse tradition and um, early religion, I would go for Dubois, D-U-B-O-I-S, Nordic Religion in the Viking Age. That's excellent. Anything by Hilda Ellis Davidson is good. Uh, mm-hmm. page also wrote one on norse mythology again it's very short uh, for a biography of Snorri Sturluson, read Reed Song of the Vikings but again it does point out that he got a lot of stuff from the continent and he did made, make up a bunch of stuff um, And but there's a lot of other stuff if you go look at bibliographies of books a lot of the new age books
0: Mm-hmm. Many of
5: them, honestly, are trash for cash. Sorry, um, interesting, amusing, uh, modern, even, and some of these things—ones that claim this is the way they did it—because um, right. I like to see contemporary documentation. And if it was not in period or mentioned elsewhere, I like to see corroboration somewhere else. Say somebody writes a, a book say, in the 1990s or 2000s, say, oh, this is the ancient way, if I cannot find it, like an archaeological or folkloric, et cetera, et cetera, right. it points to that being uh, something hatched by that particular author claiming that it is the way they did it. Oh, and incidentally, <laughs> the uh, History Channel show the Vikings, oh, my God, I didn't want to watch it because there's so much wrong with it.
4: Over. <laughs> so uh since I'm sitting in the dark I can't read my notes but I was interested I read something about you um tell me about mitracon Oh okay
5: one thing I got while re- researching a book called um the divine thunder the yeah the divine thunderbolt uh, the missile of the gods my doctoral dissertation was on Indo-European thunder gods, thunder lore, uh, lightning and thunder in religion, etc. And I saw a reference to uh, a thunderbolt with mythrism, so I got interested. Started doing research, and then started doing more research, and then even more research. And so now, for 50, 17, 18 years now, um, at in New Haven, Connecticut, and a lot of our um, program is at Yale University, uh, Uh MithraCon, which is focusing on Mithraism and cults of the Roman Empire. And one of the things we do is on Saturday, Sterling Memorial Library opens up at 10 a.m. So we go in, some of us have our stacks privileges paid for ahead of time, set up base Mm -hmm. camp in the reference room, and then you have 30 floors or so of scholarly books, etc, journals, etc, etc. And they have something called book scan or something like that where you can scan into a thumb drive or into a file that you send your email free uh, material in the library so you can do research on whatever you want. So this is here is a chance to do research in a major university library.
2: But oh, we that's have presentations
5: nice. on Mithraism and one of the people uh, Ariel Siracco who is known in the pagan community? Uh, mm-hmm. A very high-level Mason, and it, we got to talking. It's amazing the similarities between Masonry and Mithraism, and the two of us are thinking there is a possible connection that, as Mithraism went underground and was underground for a while, this may have been one of the bases for the uh, codification of Freemasonry over.
4: So, um getting off subject a little bit, I read that you also have an online store with herbs, I believe. Spices, yeah. Spice blends,
5: herbs. Spices. Yeah. Tell me about that. Uh I do we my partners and I, I have two partners, nice married couple, and uh we do over four hundred and seventy uh spice or herb blends plus the ingredients. We sell at Penzik. We bring the whole store up, out at Pennzick. And um but we're online ww com. So mm-hmm. we ha we can season anything
4: you can think of,
5: challenge us.
4: Over. So are they um cooking spices? Are they medicinal spices? Uh, culinary medicinal? primarily. Oh culinary. okay
5: but okay. a lot of the herbs, uh, the botanicals, can be used in the makings of medicine. You know, teas okay. and, and washes, et cetera.
4: Over. Okay. All right. So, and if they, can you give us the website one more time in case someone is interested? www
5: dot a u n as in Nancy T i e a r w e n as in Nancy S-P-I-C-E-S dot com.
4: Tell me, um, um, in our remaining time, what are some misconceptions of the Norse that you would like to clear up? Okay, Vikings were not necessarily
5: badass axemen. Really? Most of the people were (laughs) simply... Raising animals, weaving whatever, smiths, etc, but you see blood cells, Shakespeare do that if you had lots of death on stage, people came to the play, so right, like the history channel, uh, you know a lot of axe work and sword work, et cetera, but that was relatively rare, and uh so that was one misconception um, and the outfits that they used in the Vikings and the haircuts, and who was alive at the same time as who? Oh, my heavens, no. Um, And people also believing that whatever Snorri wrote was Viking, whereas he wrote some 200 years into the Christian era, and he was inventing a lot of stuff. So um, I go by the archaeological things. This past weekend... At the uh-huh. Mystic Marine Museum, they had a nice exhibit from the, uh, I think it was from Uppsala, no, Lund University in Sweden, various artifacts from Sweden. And no, they did not have horns on their helmets. Agar is wrong there. And etc. You're
4: kidding. You're killing my fantasies of Vikings, Jane. Anyway.
5: <laughs> no, uh, there was a Bronze Age thing that had horns, but it was a processional thing. And horns indicated divinity, and if you go way back through history, too, like uh, Mesopotamia, and uh, you know where they had those horned helms, those so, mm-hmm. uh, or ha- horned hats, and then there was the horned Moses, and there was the horned Alexander the Great. So that would be a definite divinity thing, but the Hagar, the horrible horns, wrong, but that was from Victorian times.
0: Mm-hmm. Again,
5: a lot of things came out in a Victorian New Age that had absolutely nothing or very little to do with historical fact. But imagination ran wild, and it played well in the theater, as it were. Over.
4: Absolutely. We're just about out of time. We are almost out of time. But if someone would be interested in learning more about uh, Norse tradition and getting started, which one of your books would you recommend that they start with?
5: Well, I have a lot in The Divine Thunderbolt. The okay. School of the Gods. I have a lot, big sections, because Thor, I'm focusing on, but I have a chapter on Odin, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but uh, the um, rural stuff is in The Way of the Wise. And that okay. is, you know, what was out in peasant country, where you were, you know, literally surviving. In right. the elite, you were like there were merchants, there were um, shipping, uh, et cetera. It was entirely different uh, society. As a matter of fact, each one would say, "Keep the other away from us." Remember that line wow. in uh, "Fiddler on the Roof": "Lord, to protect the Tsar, keep him, keep him away from us." Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, and the rurals were a lot closer to the Sami. Uh, the uh, elite could care. They were much more interested in things out South Germany, the continent, you know, the shipping routes, et cetera, and mm-hmm. could care about the inland. There was really quite a division there. So when you talk about Norse mythology, what you're getting is a heavy dose of Snari, but you're not getting much. And again, not so much was recorded. We have to get from sparse, Runic inscriptions, but also archaeological uh, digs, particularly grave finds, etc. So it's sparse on what we know there. But you see, since Snorri wrote so much, and a mm-hmm. lot of his stuff got preserved, that that this is what people take. A lot of people take as quote the lore unquote. Right. Unquote. It's you know, it's as if, if uh, somebody took. Um. Oh. Uh. Let me just try to think of a book. Um say some fantasy book or uh, would be book and say yes this is it like for example 2000 years from now thinking superman was a mythological was a, a actual
0: car right. hero
4: Well yeah. Jane thank you you have been delightful tonight thank you very very much and thank you for being so patient we're having thunderstorms here so my electric has been out most of the tonight so uh, so I apologize for the touch and go for a while for my phone, but thank you very, very much. And listeners, if you are um, would like to read some of Jane's books, Jane says that you can get them on Amazon, and you can go there, and she says sometimes you can even get a used copy. So there you go.
5: Yeah, and I write under J.T. Sibley. If it's good enough for J.K. Rowling, it's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got five-star reviews for my books. I had fun riding Norse mythology, according to Uncle Einar. There, Thor rides a Harley.
4: Thank you. All right. All righty, thank you. Thank you. And besides Jane, I'd like to thank David, our sound engineer, for his technical expertise. I'd like to thank Pagans tonight on Blog Talk Radio for hosting our show. And finally, I'd like to thank all of you out there, our listeners, for your continued support of all of our shows here on Circle Radio. Remember, we're here each Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Central, 9 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Mountain, and 6 p.m. Pacific time. Each week we explore various topics of interest to the begging community. So come back next Tuesday. We'll now transition our show with a musical selection. Good night, everybody, and blessed be.
0: One spirit in the dark Like a candle wavers Many spirits joined as one Burned with the power of the blazing sun